Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house of Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He was sheared, shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of, Na of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was sharing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and meet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did, not, we did, not, we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered, David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from the masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? No, David's men turned away and came back and told all of this. And David said to his men, every man strapped on his sword, and every man of, of them strapped on his sword, David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail's, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the man was very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a, there was a wall, we were a wall up to us both by night and by day. All the while we were there, we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider that you should do, for harm is determined against, your, against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took hundred loaves, two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parsed grain and hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on the donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go behold, before, before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode, to the, rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met him. Now David said, Surely in vain have I guarded all these fellows in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if I am mourning, I leave, if by mourning I leave so much as one male of all, who belonged to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears, hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard his worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is the name and follies with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. 
Now then, my Lord has the life, has the Lord's lives, and your soul lives because the Lord has returned you from blood guilt and from saving with your hand. Now then, your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nebel. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly take my Lord as a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling as, the, as from the hollow of a sling. And then the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience of having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, blessed be you who have kept me this day from the blood guilt and from the working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly my morning, by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his hand like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing, nothing at all until the next morning, until the next light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And then 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil to Nabal on his head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to take you him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of your servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinomah of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal his daughters, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was at Galem. Lord, we need your help this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to give us insight, Lord, to grasp, Lord, not just the, the flow and the content of the story, but, Lord, the application and the implication, Lord, to we who are your children. And, Lord, I ask that as your messenger this morning that I would simply be that mouthpiece, Lord, that you would... Uh, speak through um, the words, Lord, that um, come out of my mouth so that your people can be built up in the faith, that we can be strong, Lord, in our pursuit of you, that we can have an understanding of um, the ways in which, Lord, we are sinful and struggle, and Lord, how beautiful your gospel is and 
restoring us, Lord, to wholeness and to being like your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we, we ask for your help. We ask, Lord, that uh, we would be humble and teachable this morning and that you would accomplish your purposes in this time, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the past few weeks, our family, or I might say our extended family and friends, have experienced a number of weddings and even a number of funerals. Of course, weddings and funerals are significant times of sadness and joy that cycle through the lives of people as they seek to live out their existence on the earth. There are times of coming together, so to speak, that also give opportunity for times of catching up on what has been going on between those times. You know what I'm talking about. When you get to a wedding and you see a cousin, you see a friend, and you haven't seen him for a while, and you're finding out what's going on, or maybe at a funeral, someone you haven't seen for years is gathered there at that location, and it's an opportunity to find out what's going on. And as we read this text here this morning, you may have caught it, but the narrator chooses to bracket the story of David and Abigail um, with some weddings and a couple of funerals. To begin with, you have Samuel's death and burial, his funeral. That was a, a sad time for Israel, but it did mark off an end of an era and in particular for David, someone that he leaned on for counsel and wisdom. At the end of the story, we find the death of Nabal, um, and we, we see not only that, but we see three weddings mentioned there, David's wedding to Abigail, his wedding to Ahinoam, which seems to be stated as a past tense. This is something that had already taken place before this time, as well as the unusual wedding of Michael now to someone else. And if you remember, Michael was David's wife, but also Saul's daughter. And so there's a lot of mess going on here as far as the weddings are concerned. And, and we can get distracted about that and just <clears throat> at least understand this. It's worth saying this, that, that God in, 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 in his intention and desire for mankind established one man and one woman to be those that come together for marriage. What, what happened in the Old Testament many times here um, were political moves, and these were not things that God honored, and yet it seems like God um, at least tolerated for that season, although he was not in favor of that. So <clears throat> this morning we want to look at this passage, and we want to look at this passage through the lens of, um, obviously through the lens of the Holy Spirit and God working through this, but we want to seek to understand what is contained within these bookends. And so... <clears throat> Uh, there's something, though, that, that kind of laces an understanding and an awareness of what the narrator is getting at for us. And I want to draw your attention to uh, a word, and it's the word restraint. And it's going to be translated a couple of different ways in this text, but it's the, it's the theme. It's what's driving this passage. Notice in verse 26, here's kind of a punchline and all of these are going to be somewhat of punchlines from the mouths of those who are involved in the story here. It says in verse 26, Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Then look at verse 33. Blessed be you, he's talking about Abigail, David speaking here, who have kept or restrained me this day 
from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Again, in verse 34, for as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, again, that's David speaking to Abigail, in verse 39, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back or restrained his servant, that would be David, from wrongdoing. I want to put all of this together and I would propose to you that as we come to uh, 1 Samuel 25, what we have going on here is this. As we lean on God's providence, we must recognize the need for divine restraint in the face of personal folly. In other words, to put it differently, we must recognize the danger of taking vengeance into our own hands rather than giving it to God. And we need to learn three things, and this is what's going to flesh out as we look at the story. Number one, that we're all susceptible to revenge and to thoughts of revenge and feelings of vengeance. Secondly, we also need to to learn that we need the counsel of others to bring us back to gospel-centeredness. And finally, we'll need to learn that when we put revenge in God's hands, we are truly blessed. Let me say those three things again, just so that we, we get that as a framework for where we're going. First of all, that we're all susceptible to revenge. Secondly, that we need the counsel of others to bring us back to gospel-centeredness. Third, that when we put revenge in God's hands, we are truly blessed. And so we're introduced to some new characters in this chapter here. After Samuel is buried, we read, then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. All right, David wasn't driving a Ferrari, but in their terms, this is what richness looked like. Okay? This is how you measured the wealth of someone. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the names of the man, uh, name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Let's just draw our attention to that, that last little part of verse three. We have beautiful and discerning Abigail. And by the way, um, you will love the name Abigail after this chapter. It will be a name that will be revered as one that you might consider to name your children. It's a beautiful name from a beautiful woman who is also discerning. But we also have harsh and badly behaved Nabal. And the narrator, seeking to clarify his comments about Nabal's harsh and badly behaved character, simply states the obvious. Well, he was a Calebite. Oh, yeah, he's a Calebite. It's kind of like saying, you know, well, yeah, he's from Ohio. Well, from someone that grew up in Michigan, that makes sense, right? Or, or maybe, you know, he's a Yankees fan, so that just explains it. Now, you understand I'm being kind. I could say other things right now to draw in more people. 
But it seems like as he's, as he's playing this out, here's Nabal, here's his character, and of course he's a Calebite. So how do you, you know, of course that's true. And so we're, the, the stage is set now for the story to begin. And we, we want to be careful here. We're not just on the outside looking in. We want to say, God, draw us in to see what we need to see about us. Not just about what's going on in the story, but about, about us. And so we'll begin the story by at least identifying the first part of the flow of the story, and I'm calling this insulted by a foolish man. This is a story about David and the experiences that he is going through on this particular day. And we'll find here that he is insulted by a foolish man. His name is Nabal. But the custom of the day was that if a lord was in the area, he would protect the farmers and the shepherds in that area. And that is exactly what David was doing. He was a a leader with integrity. And he carried out the custom of the day. It was also the custom of that day that in exchange for that protection, when harvest came or the shearing season came, when there was that time of celebration or feasting, that those who were protecting were given provisions as a means of saying thank you for their assistance and thank you for their help. So David sends 10 of his men in his name, in other words, under his authority, with a message of peace and a request for provisions. He had 600 men, okay? So that's a lot of mouths to feed, right? We're planning our, you know, our, our picnic coming up here, or, or I shouldn't say our, our celebration, our four-year celebration. There could be a lot of mouths to feed, but 600 who are living out in the wilderness. I mean, all chasing after the same deer. You know what I'm saying? That it's, food is hard to find, and so the provision is really an important thing. Now, the request was done in the right way. He didn't arrive with 600 men saying, now give us food, as they're you know, banging their shields with their swords. He came in the respectful way. It was humble. It was respectful. And you would expect an appropriate response. But of course, knowing the nature of man, knowing the sinfulness of man, and that people don't always respond in the ways that you would expect, we see that what we would expect isn't what happens. Nabal, by the way, whose name means fool, responds to David's request with a personal attack on David's character. Notice what it says, verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the man or to men who come from I do not know where? Now what would you be thinking at this point if you were the one who had protected Nabal's farmers and shears? What would you have said? What would you have done? Now it's important to think through Nabal's statement with the understanding that Nabal knows exactly who David is. That comes out very clearly when Abigail is speaking to David because she's fully aware that this guy is destined for kingship. So let's go through those statements again. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? In other words, who do you think you are? Someone important? I don't think so. Or there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. 
In other words, he's accusing David of rebellion. And of course, David wasn't the one who was rebelling. David is the one who's dodging spears, running in the wilderness. And then, of course, he says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers? Oh, yeah, by the way, remember they're the ones that we protected, right? And give it to the men who come from I do not know where. In other words, do you think that I'm going to take the food prepared for my guys and give it to your guys? I don't think so. That's not going to happen. Now, friends, it's easy to lose our way when we're insulted, is it not? It's easy for our emotional juices to start flowing and quickly rise to the boiling point. It's easy for all sense and reason to be thrown out the door at times like this. And insults come from a variety of places. Let's just think through a number of them just to kind of get the idea. At work, where a boss accuses us of something we didn't do. Or maybe at college when you're in that class but that professor knows that you are a Christian and so he's doing everything he can to kind of insult you and, and twist at your beliefs. Or maybe it's on the sports field or the basketball court where another player taunts and laughs at uh, your, your bad pass or your missed shot or your weak defense. Or maybe it's at home where a husband speaks unfairly about his wife's ability to handle the finances or the, the cooking of the evening meal. Or maybe it's in the family unit where parents or siblings mock a child who is trying to accomplish a chore as best they can, but it's having difficulty. Or it's the extended family where one family member is gossiping about you behind your back. Or it's even in church where one brother or sister in Christ says to you, after your simple episode, you know, if, if you had been reading the Robert Murray McShane plan, you would have read today's verse that speaks directly to what you're going through. Mm. Now the question we must ask ourselves is this. What are you and I thinking when we're insulted? And what are we desiring at that very same time. I know I've shared this story with you before, but it fits so well, I'll share it again. Um, one of my best friends growing up, his name is Spencer. And I happened to see him for the first time in 30 years, uh, last October when I went to England with my wife. But we were, every Saturday we would, we would go up to the soccer fields and we would play soccer together. And of course in England weather, um, it was always rainy, and we would just be muddy all the time. But especially on this one Saturday, it was really, really wet. And there's just you know, mud all over the place. We were just having such a great time. We were just covered from head to toe in mud because we would play three and in. So we'd each take turns being the goalkeeper, which meant you would you know, dive and you would get all muddy. And of course, when it's wet and it's soft, it was fun to dive because you had a soft landing. You know? So just covered with mud. Well, in the field, after we were done, there was this, it rained so much, there was this big, huge puddle. So, you know, we both went over to the, to the puddle and I, I kind of crouched down to wash my hands off and, you know, we're just going to get a little cleaned up, right, just in certain parts. Well, as soon as I did that, he came up behind me and went, Psh! and I went full body, face first, into that water. I was soaked from head to toe. And he's in the back going, ah! 
And then I get up and I am mad. And I'm going to get him. The problem was now I'm laden down with water and mud, right? So I'm slipping and I'm slow and he's running from me and he's laughing as I'm trying to chase him, but I can't get to him. My best friend. We didn't speak for a year. And I think back to that time and I think about what was going on in my heart. I was so angry at him, I was getting him back by not speaking. Now, friends, we feel things when we are insulted. We feel things when people say things or do things against us that hurt. And we act on those things. And they have implications. Now, if we're willing to be honest, and we'll all agree that we struggle with thoughts and feelings of vengeance at time, am I right? we're insulted, we're all susceptible to revenge. Whether we're ordinary people, simply trying to live out our lives for God's glory, or whether we're, like David, important people, key people in the, I might want to say, the unfolding plan of God. Revenge is a matter of the heart, and we can all be guilty of both nursing it and acting on it. When David hears the news from his 10 men, he immediately begins to beat his chest with thoughts and plans of revenge. I mean, you can just just see the the, the blood boiling, right? Just like the the old comics they would have, right? You know, the the blood would come right up here and then the smoke would come out of the ears and the nose. You can just, and here's what David does, right? There's no discussion, there's no counsel, just raw emotion and action. Verse 13, and David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. I mean, it wasn't like, hey guys, go get your swords. We're gonna, we're gonna go down and see Nabal. It wasn't like that at all. It was like, every man, get your swords. We're gonna go do some killing today. Every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Those poor guys with the baggage didn't see any action that day. Now what's going through David's mind as he's strapped on his sword and readied himself to slaughter Nabal and his men? We find that a little later in the narrative. It's put there purposely to help unfold the story, but it's helpful to bring it here. And it's verse 21 and verse 22. This is now David had said, surely in vain I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me, what? Evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now David is both offended and insulted by Nabal's words. But David still, or sorry to say, but still David's response And his intended action is way over the top for the crime that was committed. I mean, Nabal hasn't declared war against David. He's only insulted him, right? But that is the nature of vengeance when it's exercised by a sinful, emotionally driven heart. It wants to act according to the flesh, the desires of the heart rather than 
God's desires. It wants to act with only self in mind. It doesn't think about the implication of others, only its own joy being satisfied. It wants to ignore God, to ignore his word, and push away the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so like David, when we are susceptible to the temptation of vengeance, we so easily give in to spiritual amnesia. We just forget. We forget who God is, and we forget who we are as God's children. We stop thinking about his thoughts and plans for us, and we stop thinking about his promises. We just start thinking about what we want in the moment, for that moment, to satisfy our own sinful passions for revenge. And so we must remember that you and I don't need to take vengeance. Why? Because God has promised to do that, right? We need to remember that you and I don't need to panic in the face of lack of provision. God has promised to take care of us. We don't need to worry or, or fear or fret because God has promised to take care of us. And you and I don't need to worry about our reputation because our identity is not found in this world and what this world thinks of us, but our identity is bound up in who we are in Christ. We're his children. We're part of his family. We are citizens of another kingdom where Christ is sitting on the throne. We are objects of his love, covenanted together through the blood that was shed on the cross. That's our identity. That is who we are. And so here is David, who because of an insult has forgotten both who God is and what God has called him to be and to do. He is God's anointed, but he's only thinking about an insult and acting on it. Friends, we are just like David. We're no different. We're so easily distracted. We're so easily seduced away from God's purpose. We're so easily susceptible to sin. And we so easily forget who God really is and who we really are. And it's at those times that we need to be rescued. We need God's grace to restrain us from our sinful, vengeful, emotional pursuits. And it's at this time that God often jumps into our stories of vengeance and turns us away from taking things into our own hands. In our situation, friends, it can come from a verse of scripture that the Holy Spirit brings to our remembrance. I mean, here you are, you're wanting to beat your chest and there's foam coming out of your mouth figuratively. And as you're thinking about getting on that phone and calling that person and just, bing, Holy Spirit reminds you of a truth, a verse of scripture that brings you back and restrains you from your behavior that's flowing out of your angry, sinful, vengeful heart. 
It can come from the inner desire for integrity and holiness in your pursuit of Christ-likeness that speaks from our conscience. It's saying, hey, listen, what are you doing? What are you doing? Stop what you're doing. This is all an internal voice that's speaking to say, no, this is not. This is not where you want to go. Your conscience is speaking to you. It can come from the faces of our children or family for whom we know that we're responsible, and so as we're going about doing this vengeful thing, our emotions are, are in full-blown fashion to pursue that sinful desire, the faces of our children, the faces of our family, maybe the faces of our fellow church members are before us, and they are there to counsel us. Do you really want to destroy the beauty of what you have by going through with this this behavior that you're so consumed with. And friends, the restraint can also come from a friend who is present or in whom we confide our rage or even from someone we have never met before. God doesn't always intervene. But if we're honest, God is regularly in his activity, um, is regular, I should say, in his activity in both restraining and rescuing us from our sinful folly. He is just constantly doing that through all sorts of different means. So as David pines away his vengeance against Nabal, sorry, this should be up there. As he's pining away his vengeance against Nabal and his men, God is stirring up a heart in the person of Abigail, Nabal's wife. Now friends, we're just trying to stress the point. Here's here's point number one. We can all be guilty of revenge and pursuing that and allowing our flesh just to rule the day because we have been insulted. But God, in his kindness, brings about rescue right now he brings it through the woman by the name of Abigail. We talk about insulted by a foolish man. Now we want to look at what I'm calling placated by a wise woman. To placate means to to really stop something from going its full born way. It's kind of an appeasement. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a way in which now she is going to be the rescuer, the deliverer for David. And so verse 14 is a hinge in the story. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. So we have this report from one of Nabal's young men who affirmed David's kindness to the shearers in the wilderness and Nabal's response. He says, they they were a wall to us both by night and by day. But what is remarkable is that he continues and as he continues, he speaks unfavorably to Abigail about her husband, Nabal. And he calls Nabal a worthless man that cannot be spoken to. Now this is not typically what 
you would recommend, is it? A servant going to the wife and saying, your husband's a jerk. It doesn't usually go over too well. But there's something on the line here. And what's on the line here is that there is a a band of men that are coming our way that are going to come and destroy us. And it's not because of us, but it's because of your husband. And so he continues to explain the story. And and notice now how, how Abigail responds. By the way, we're seeing here another Saul and Nabal. He is a fool who has lost all reason, whose servants find him contemptible, and who is bringing disaster upon his own house. Now notice how Abigail responds. She starts to order provisions to be taken to David ahead of her. 200 loaves of bread, it says. Two skirts of wine. Five sheep already prepared, I'm assuming, to eat. Plenty of grain, raisins, fig cakes. And she also gives strict instructions not to tell her husband. Wow. Again, the plot thickens a little bit, doesn't it? But with a purpose. And it was about the time when, when David came down from the mountain and, and, and Abigail catches up with this, this train of donkeys with all these provisions on it that they end up meeting. Now let's just notice what Abigail does. First of all, notice her humility. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and she fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet. Now friends, there's all sorts of cultural responses here that are communicating humility, but let me just say it this way. Before one can be heard so much is already said by body language. That's a lesson I need to learn. You can say all the right words, but your body is saying something completely different. And that may not be your intention all the time, but that is what is communicated. So here we have Abigail wanting to make sure that her body language communicates her heart. And so she gets down, she bows down at his feet, bows down to the ground so that she can be heard. But notice now her words. They're wise words. They're discerning words. And we might even say that they are a lesson in effective communication in the midst of conflict. And by that, I do not mean think of this formulaically. All right? In other words, well, this is what Abigail said, so as I'm having conflict, I'm going to go through everything that's here. But no, just learn there's some really helpful things that she does to really placate the situation and, and, to, and to help David out. And, and get this, Abigail is not just thinking about her own safety. She's also thinking about David and his good. First of all, she assumes her husband's guilt. She takes that on herself. Notice what it says. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Now, was she culpable in this story? Is there anything you can find where she is responsible for any way that her husband responded the way he did? The answer is no, but she is married to him. And so she takes ownership. 
because she is united to him. Then she asked for permission to be heard. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. And friends, a lot of times in the midst of conflict, just asking, hey, can I, can I, can I share something with you? Will you, you know, can, can I talk to you a little bit? Asking permission is a door that opens often in a conflict rather than just saying, well, I'm gonna tell you, right? That's kind of like I'm barging in. But if you ask permission, people, all right, go ahead, talk. Number three, she clearly explains the offense. I should say the context of the offense. First of all, she says, my husband is a worthless man and a fool. <laughs> now again, wives, this is not what I would encourage you to say to strangers you meet about your spouse, okay? But it is the truth in this situation. Notice what she says. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. Heard that word again. Nabal, for his name is, so is he, right? He is fool, and that's what he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Secondly, not only is my husband a worthless man, but I was unaware of your kindness. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. In other words, if I had known, I would have stepped up and I would have welcomed you, and I would have arranged this. The third thing here is, but I know that God's hand is at work. And this is where we, we just we marvel in the story. We know that by these words that Abigail is aware of something that's going on with David, and that he is, he is the one that God has chosen to be king. So somehow she understands that Nabal will reach his own appropriate end, but she sees her interception here of David as God's doing in order to restrain David from taking things into his own hands and shedding blood guilt. So let's just read verse 26 and following. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So she clearly and carefully explains the context of the offense and immediately she moves in verse 28 and asks for forgiveness. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. Hey listen, <laughs> here, you know, here, here we go again, right? She assumes her husband's guilt she clearly, or she asked for permission to be heard, she clearly explains the context, and she quickly asks for forgiveness. And then, beginning at verse, uh, the middle of verse 28, she begins to encourage and bless David, and notice what she says, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord, talking there about David, right, notice the little L there, the Lord, God, will certainly make my Lord, David, a sure house, All right, family line, Dynasty, because my Lord, again, little L.S. David, is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as far as the hollow 
of a sling. Now, who do we know is a slinger in this story? Who understands that? And when the Lord has done to my Lord, again, talking about David, according to all the good that is, has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, okay, again, this is all language. She is saying to David, listen, I believe that you are going to be once, on one day, at God's timing, the king of this land. So David has heard witness about God's promise to him and his, his um, anointing and his future reality as being a king. He's, he's heard witness about that, not just from Samuel when he was first anointed, but also in the story, Jonathan gives testimony to that, right? his friend with whom he had covenant together. Then from Saul in the last chapter, Saul finally says, you know what? I realize that God is raising you up to be king. So just preserve my family line, that's what he says. And now Abigail once again speaks in a way that's saying, hey David, you are going to be king. God is at work establishing his purposes in your life. David needs that encouragement. He needs to be reminded. Remember, waiting is difficult. When you've been told, hey, you're going to be king, and now I'm like, all right, so when's this going to be? Why do I have to go through all this stuff? Because it's all part of God's preparation for you to be in that position. And then finally here, she appeals to David's conscience. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord's working salvation himself. What she's saying is this, that when you actually get to that throne, you don't want to look back on this day with a guilty conscience knowing that you took matters into your own hands rather than allowing God to be God. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. What a woman. What a word. What a wonderful picture of careful, godly encouragement, counsel, and words that diffuse the raging of a man to take vengeance upon another. Can you think of a wiser way for Abigail to approach David? So, I mean, here he comes with, toward Abigail, and his blood is pumping, and his revenge is frothing from his mouth, and Abigail skillfully acknowledges the truthfulness of the offense, the context of the failure, and the presence of God in the conflict, and she turns to for forgiveness, encouragement, and an appeal to conscience. Now, friends, the text is not just screaming at us that we are susceptible to the feelings and actions of vengeance. It's shouting at us that we need others to come to our aid when we are in the grip of our own foolishness to rescue us and to restrain us from that momentary foolishness. God has called us to be the church. And that means we, we pursue our walk with God as a community project. 
We need one another. We need one another's gifts as instruments to both push us in our pursuit of Christ as well as to restrain us from our foolish sinfulness. We, we need one another's wisdom when we're lacking wisdom. We need one another's warnings when we're not able to see the danger that is before us or around us. We need others' strength at times when we are weak. So be thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that continues to work in our lives through the body of Christ to grow us into the person of Christ. You see, when we are faced with temptation or, or struggle, we often pray for grace. But usually the prayer for grace is a grace of relief. It isn't necessarily always a grace of restraint or a grace of refinement. We're just saying, God, relieve me, rather than refine me through this. What God was doing with David was refining him. This was a refining moment for David. It exposed his heart and showed where he was susceptible. He needed to know that although God had already revealed his sinful heart in the cave, that was the last chapter when David cut off the corner of Saul's robe, that that lesson wasn't enough for David. He needed another lesson. This is not like you know, going to your counselor at school and say, well, I already took that class, so I don't have to take it again. In God's world, we need to take that class over and over and over and over. Because you know what? We might learn it under a set of certain circumstances, but when the details of the circumstances change, it all looks different to us, and it seems like a whole new thing. And God here with David says, same issue, different circumstances, you still need to learn. And we're all like that, aren't we? See, what we learn on Sunday will drive us maybe to repentance, but when Wednesday comes, we fail again on the same sin. That's all part of God's refining his children, and so be thankful for it, and, and we need grace to be refined during those trials, during those temptations, during those struggles. You see, that the main issue for David was not Nabal, but David. David needed to be rescued from David's sinful foolishness. And we can blame all things around us, but the reality is that we need to be rescued from ourselves, from our own sinful tendencies. So our trials and our temptations and our struggles are opportunities for God to refine us, to show us that our greatest need is to be rescued, not from that boss, not from that professor, not from that spouse, or that gossipy family member. Our greatest need is to be rescued from our own sinful foolishness. And we need the Abigails of this world to come to us with words of wisdom and clarity and counsel to encourage us to pursue Christ rather than our sinful intentions. See, we're, we're all like David, susceptible to passionate sin, but we're also called to follow Abigail's example and to serve others with the ministry of restraint. So, 
We've seen here an insult by a foolish man, a, a placating by a wise woman. Now I want us to see that we are, and David in particular is, but I think also we would say that we are blessed by a sovereign God. The blessing of restraint, first of all, you will notice, is from God. It's the blessing of restraint from God. Look at verse 32. Here with a blessing from God. He says it very clearly. And, and David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent uh, you this day to meet me. Certainly Abigail is the Asian, but God is the one who's behind it. And God works through his chosen servants to accomplish his purposes. So this blessing of restraint is from God, but it's also a blessing through Abigail, verse 33 and following. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me. This is, this is a, a blessing, friends, of restraint. It was Abigail's intervention that kept David from walking in Saul's sandals. You see, her restraint kept David from turning Nabal's caramel into Saul's knob. Now you remember, knob is the city where David went to to inquire from the priest and also retrieve Goliath's sword. Saul finds out about it and what he does is he puts the whole city to the ban, which means he kills off every living creature in that city because he's raging about the fact that you actually welcome David into your city. And Abigail's words restrain David from carrying out his sinful plan. Carmel would have been another horrific day in Israel's history if it were not for the faithfulness of God through his servant Abigail. In other words, God has restrained David from taking vengeance in his own hands. Now I'm ashamed to admit that the depths of depravity in my heart, when I have pondered some very bitter offenses and insults against me, my sinful emotions have taken me places that I never thought I would go. My, my, I plotted things in my heart that I don't ever want to repeat to anyone. But I'm most thankful for divine restraint by God's hand on my life that put an end to plotting revenge and turning it into trusting God. Now friends, that's, that's a huge transition for us. And there are some people, I'm sure, in this room today who have been, who have been just in the quietness of their heart, they've been, they've been nursing an offense, an insult, a wound for years. They've plotted ways. In fact, they've gotten themselves to the place and as they lay their head on their pillow at night, maybe they can't sleep, but they're thinking of ways to get back at that person. And there's a, there's a need for them to transition out of that out of that selfish pursuit and satisfying of personal revengeful joy to trusting that God will carry out any necessary revenge. It's the blessing of restraint. There's also the blessing of vengeance from God. 
Sometimes we hear the words from Romans 12, 19 as platitudes. Let me read for you Romans 12, 19. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we can, we can say that as a platitude. Yeah, vengeance is mine. God says, I will repay. But we're also always wondering when that's actually going to take place. And what we have in this story is not only a reminder for David, but because it's in the story, it's also a reminder for us that what God promises that he will do, he will do. And so for David here, this is a blessing to see God's revenge or his vengeance carried out. God's promises are still true. Notice what happens in this story. Verse 37, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, this is after Abigail returns, his wife told him these things, what David and she had talked about, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Just that the news of that encounter, and about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. This wasn't, this wasn't David doing anything. This was God in his own timing, in his own way, dealing with a man who was a fool, who was shaking his fist at God and God's anointed. Knowing full well who he was, but insulting him nonetheless. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, who has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. <laughs> God, thank you. Thank you for the lesson I'm learning here. Thank you for showing my sinful heart. Thank you for revealing how foolish I was to think that way and to respond that way when I should have just trusted you. Thank you for showing me that you are a God who keeps your promises and he restrains his servant from doing foolishness. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So friends, there is a blessing of vengeance and by no means am I thinking that it's, it's just a wonderful thing for people to die in the name of God. That's not what's going on here. When, when the word of God says, you know, vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord, we're basically saying we're, we're putting all this scenario, God, in, in your hands, and we're, we're just trusting that you're going to carry it out in the best way possible because you're God, and, and you're going to do it in your timing, in your way. Now, the reality is, hear this, sometimes the person who has committed the offense or the insult is ultimately part of God's family or will be one day. I mean, just think of Saul heading up the killing of Christians, right? I mean, he insulted God in, in many ways. He deserved vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. But in God's paradigm of things, he is saved from the brunt of God's vengeance because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he took the sin in that particular situation of Saul and placed it on his shoulders. So that the wrath that Saul deserved was now put on Christ. And so vengeance has been exercised not on Saul, but has been exercised on Christ. Now let's turn this around. We are the offender. 
We are the ones who insult. We are the ones that other people are saying, God, you take care of them. Vengeance is mine, you promise. And by God's grace, he draws us into the family of God by virtue of his gospel. Understand, the wrath that you and I deserved was what was put on the shoulders of Christ. Vengeance has been exercised in that situation. But not on us. But on him. All right, he was bruised for our transgression. This is what it's talking about. The, the, the stripes that he received were what we deserved. That is God's wrath, God's vengeance being poured out on those whom he has drawn to himself through the gospel. It's a beautiful reminder, friends, and it is a blessing. There's also the blessing here. <clears throat> of wisdom from God, and that wisdom comes through the marriage of Abigail to David. And not only is she beautiful, but she's discerning. And remember who died at the beginning of this chapter? Samuel, the one who David would seek after for strength and direction and wisdom, God now places by his side a godly woman who's discerning, who's helpful. So, in seeing the beauty of her character and her boldness and the, the way she handled the situation, he pursues her and seeks her hand in marriage, and so she comes, and she is ultimately married to David. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? An amazing story. Let's finish up, though, with a couple of concluding thoughts, and I want to draw your attention to this verse, Hebrews 12, 3. But I want to, I want to just leave you with two thoughts. First one is this, is that the, the whole of, of 1 Samuel is, is all about God raising up his king, and ultimately we see that, that that king is David, although he is yet to actually be crowned as king, and his ascension is now in process. If you remember, Saul's is going down now, and David is kind of rising in the story, and so it's coming, but um, throughout the story, we've learned some things, that the, the, the raising of a king can only be done by God himself, the task cannot be entrusted to human instruments. Let me just paint a picture for you from the text here. Eli, if you remember, will honor his sons above God. Fail. The next leader, Saul, will attempt to rule the kingdom by God's sword. He's just going to go and kill everyone that's opposed to him. Fail. Samuel, left to himself, remember chapter 16, would choose another one like Saul to be king, which ultimately was a fail because God in that moment had David in mind. But even David, left to himself, would needlessly spill the soil of Israel with the blood of men like Nabal. 
There's only one servant that can be trusted with God's kingdom. He understood what enduring hostility from sinners was truly like. Hebrews 12.3, consider him, that's Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. See, it didn't deter Jesus from ascending to the throne of heaven by the cross of Calvary. He did that with joy. And God was raising up an earthly king, but ultimately he was raising up the king of kings, and that person would be Jesus. And he knew, and he knows what it is to be insulted. So you can't help but read this passage and hear the strands of the gospel throughout, that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, on the ultimate mission of rescue. Because our deepest needs, our deepest problems are, 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 could not be solved by us. We don't have the ability to solve the problem. Because the problem isn't outside of us. The problem is inside. It's our own sin. So God did a radical thing in sending his own son to suffer the ravages of this world to live a perfect life, to take himself, on himself our sin, to, to raise from the dead, so that at our point of need, there would be rescue for us. But not only is God raising up a king, he is also raising up a people. God is raising up a people, his church, to know him and to know themselves in light of his revealed word. Again, Hebrews 12, 3 tells us, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that, so that's a pivotal statement there, so that what? You would not grow weary or faint-hearted. When we see our sinfulness in a story like this, it's easy to give in, isn't it? It's easy for us to say to ourselves, if a man like David can't control himself, is there any hope for me? But as we identify with the sinfulness of David, we must also identify with the restraining hand of God that is constantly at work in our lives. He's calling us as a church to be teachable, like a disciple, to be growing in our pursuit of Christ, to be thankful for the many gifts in the body of Christ, to be knowledgeable about who God is and who we are in Christ. In fact, J.D., when he started our service this morning, he was reading Philippians 1.27, and in there it says about the church, with one mind, striving side by side. So he's called us to be a people that recognize the struggle, but also to help one another to be rescued from the foolishness of our sin, which is so easy for us to be susceptible to. In a moment, we're gonna sing a song that is very familiar. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And, and friends, this is a song that reflects on the gospel. It speaks about our past, where we were wretches and blind 
but it also speaks about our present. Now I see. And when we're entangled in our sinful anger and revenge, we need to remember that our chains are gone. We've been set free. We no longer have to pursue that vengeful pursuit, that vengeful direction, that vengeful sinful foolishness in our heart because our chains are gone. Because of Christ, we've been set free. We don't have to do that. We've been rescued from that. That by God's amazing grace, we're saved and we are refined. Would help us to recognize not only who you are and who we are in you, but also to be honest about our sinful tendency to foolish thinking and foolish behavior that is sparked by things that you want us to handle in a completely different way. And Lord, we all need to be reminded of that. And you've called all of us to be means and agents of loving, careful, encouraging restraint to rescue one another. And Lord, when we are those agents, it is you that is working through us for the benefit of your children whom you love whom you have bought with the blood of the cross. We are your children. We are saved. But we are your children who are being restrained day by day. Thank you for your grace. Yes, the grace of relief, but Lord, also the grace of restraint. And Lord, the grace of refinement. You're a great God. We praise you today in your name.